This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hello, and welcome to Teachers Talk Radio, The Late Show with Tom Hopkinsberg. And we've got a special show tonight supported by Bloomsbury. Um, we're going to be talking all things thriving as an ECT, um, answering the questions put forward by ECTs and other people, advice for ECTs and other such things. I'm going to pass over now to your host with the most, Tom Hopkinsberg. One, um, very good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to Teachers Talk Radio. It is Thursday. I believe it's Thursday. We're in the Easter holidays. I've lost track of what day it is. I'm led to believe it is Thursday, the 13th of April. It is half past seven, and you are here tonight on Twitter Spaces because we are joined by Andrew Taylor, um, better known as Mr. T's NQTs, and we're going to be talking all about his new book, You Got This thriving as an early career teacher it's published by bloomsbury and you can get a 10 percent discount on you got this direct on their website at bloomsbury.com forward slash uk andrew is here tonight so hopefully we can invite him in at right now um other bloomsbury shows we've had on tuesday we had scott evans we had 100 ideas for primary teachers reading for pleasure with ben thomas you can catch up with that show on ttradio.org forward slash listen back Tomorrow, we have got the one and only John McGee on with Poppy Gibson at 11am talking about the happy tank. John really is a tour de force in the world of kindness, so you don't want to miss out. And I'm led to believe that published today um, was Sarah Wordlaw's book, Time to Shake Up the Primary Curriculum, a groundbreaking book that will ensure that every child feels seen and will help teachers to become more inclusive. And she'll be talking to our very own Lucy Newberger very soon. So keep your eyes peeled. We've also got some fantastic Teachers Talk Radio debut shows coming up this week. Tomorrow at 9pm, we've got Damon Carr. I'm really excited to hear from Damon because Damon is a teaching assistant and it's really important that we um, raise the profile and voices of teaching assistants. Um, And Damon's, uh, I think, our very first TA host. Um, He's going to be talking about school funding with his guest, Rich Amponsa, who is a um, Key State Tree teacher in a pupil referral unit. Um, And then Sunday at 11am, we're back on Twitter Spaces. Sabrina Mukadam has her debut show as well. But before we get on to all of that later this week, we've got Andrew Taylor on tonight. Andrew, good evening. How are you? I'm really good. Thank you, Tom. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And we are here to talk all about your book, You Got This. But before we get on to the book, Let's talk a bit about you. Let's talk about your background as a teacher and how you've been supporting ECTs and NQTs um, in your career. Yeah, so I uh, started teaching um, a fair few years ago, too many I care to mention at the moment. Um, And about six years into my career, I got the opportunity to start working with NQTs, as they were at the time, um, in the school I was in, and absolutely loved it. Um, became a really rewarding part of what I did day in day out as I was being with the pupils having that chance to be able to support um, teachers at the start of their career being able to nurture engage with them in that way and did that then for 10 years of my time as a primary school teacher and over that time worked with 17 NQTs in that that 10 years um, working with different schools in in that aspect and it was hugely rewarding and I learned so much from working with each of them but equally found that there were those certain um, pitfalls that they all kind of fell into or experienced during that that NQT um, induction time. So when I um, 
made that transition next to working actually in in higher education supporting trainee teachers and ECTs as part of uh, what I do now at the um, university where I work at I thought actually I wonder whether um, there's a space for offering that support and sharing my experiences kind of with a wider um, network so decided I'd start and set up Mr T's and QT's and yeah it kind of it, it grew very gradually and then just suddenly became this kind of the second identity really and when I started it up I was I thought that there might be a need for this some teachers who'd come to us later on in their teaching talked about their um, NQT experiences and they weren't always um, as as robust as I kind of felt that they should have been they weren't always given those opportunities they weren't always supported in the way that I felt could have been to be able to get the best out of them so I kind of thought oh well I wonder how similar their experiences were to others and so set up this space to try and offer a, a safe place really to to NQTs and ECTs now to be able to ask those questions to be able to get some very open honest advice somebody to to champion them to back them to yeah give them that that space to ask those questions perhaps they don't have another opportunity or another place really to ask those questions and to seek that support through that way so yeah that's kind of how I've got to being here really and I suppose I mean that gives us a lot of an insight into the inspiration behind your book you got this in terms of wanting to reach out and support as many um, teachers new to a profession as well were there any other inspirations behind the book um, it, it is pretty much that, really. And, you know, there's only so many, so many, so much help I can give in 158 characters as uh, this pretty kind of restricts us to a little bit. So it was that opportunity to be able to kind of put as much advice as I could cram into about 60,000 words um, to, out there. And again, identify those those pitfalls that I know often ECTs, NQTs struggle with during that time um, during their induction. So that. It is. It's just about getting that source of support out there for for people and wanting them to be able to know that there is somewhere they can go to kind of seek that that support and have those questions answered. It's it's lovely seeing some of um, the um, reviews coming in of you know ECT saying that actually I had a question, it was there in the book, or actually this has already helped me you know to be able to answer this to be able to develop these bits and pieces, which is is really lovely to hear because you always. It's always that sense of I'm putting myself out there a little bit and I'm hoping it's going to do what I want it to do. And it, it's lovely to hear that feedback back that actually it is supporting those, those ECTs that have chosen to invest in it. Thank you for that. Yeah, um, so fantastic. I just want to say a really um, good evening to everybody who's listening here on Twitter Spaces and everybody who's listening back on our website as well. Um, in terms of people who are here at the moment, so I hope they don't mind me uh, giving a bit of a shout out. We've got Mr. K, we've got Katie, we've got Steve, we've got Mrs. Austin, we've got Mark and we've got Maslan as well. And we've also got Katie who's joined us a very good evening and ECT. So if you've got any questions at any point for Andy, um, then why not just press that speech bubble, which you can see in the bottom right of your screen, and just tweet us your questions about thriving as an ECT or surviving as an ECT. Um, why not be brave and press that request to speak button you can see in the bottom left of your screen? 
screen as well and you can come in and ask a question um also make sure you do check out the um, link for, to bloomsbury education where you can get the book at bloomsbury.com forward slash uk with a 10 percent discount and you can also get involved tonight by ask answering our question which you can see pinned to this twitter space if you could give one piece of advice to an ect starting their first job in september what would it be that's a question i'm going to be asking andrew a bit later um but for now while we're still talking about the book um how long did it take to collate to put together from say typing your first word or planning the book to publication how, about how long did it take um well, that's a really good question it, it um oh, it started about uh, i think about a year all in all from that start and um I think anybody else who's kind of had the opportunity, you know, been fortunate enough to put something together. Some of the, the parts of it wrote themselves, you know, from, you know, being able to kind of share those really kind of key insights. And some chapters I wrote very quickly early on. And then as you're trying to think about those other bits as you're going through, it's about, for me, it was about trying to think, well, actually, let's really unpick some of these things. And they took longer to write, but it was about a year all in all from that time of kind of agreeing kind of yeah I will, will will write this I still feel an absolute imposter for doing it because you always I think anybody in, in teaching always feels like well why would anybody want to uh to listen to what I've got to say um but yeah about a year from that time when I was asked to write it to the time the final manuscript needed to be in and ready with the with the publishers about a year and then it's that process then of it being kind of changed edited tweaked formatted and everything to bring it together which um brought it through then um and came out in january this year mm -hmm. so i mean a year's pretty good to be honest then um, i know you know i've talked to a lot of other authors educational authors and it's been more like 18 months two years three years um so a year's pretty good um from start to finish um and what sort of support did you get from bloomsbury um in terms of putting together a manuscript in terms of drafts in terms of publication what sort of support have you got did you get from bloomsbury Oh, Bloomsbury were absolutely fab, actually, really, really supported. Um, and, you know, from that starting point, that sense of, no, you know, we, you know, we, we like what you do. You know, you've got a really positive way of, of putting things across. We like that positivity. We want to kind of, we want to nurture that. We want you to keep that positive sense. It's written very conversationally, which I was encouraged to do as well, because, again, it has that personal sense to it and I'm always very much that that's how I write is that I want to have a conversation with the reader trying to draw them in in that respect the it's been really interesting over that time that the evolution of the format of each chapter and each chapter is very structured in a very similar way and that evolved over the writing of the first three four chapters there's different features that that appear and actually these were real kind of things that the blooms we noticed that were doing it, i was doing and using they're saying actually yeah keep that in that's working really really well and um, that's a really nice kind of opportunity for like the reflection questions the coaching moments mm -hmm. opportunities to engage uh, ects with the content and giving them that opportunity then to reflect on their own practice, which brings them into the, into the book. So all those elements were very much kind of almost appeared, but then were kind of then thought, actually, these are really strong elements then that we can utilize to create that chapter structure. And yeah, they were just brilliant with the proofreading side of things, getting the, um, the content right. And it was, it was really lovely because actually they were very much like, they're actually all the expert in this we are here just to make sure it, it reads really well and does 
and is presented as as best it can be really so it was yeah just brilliant people to work with and anybody gets the opportunity to work with Bloomsbury highly recommend it they are absolutely fantastic and again really supportive and want to kind of find I felt they wanted to help me find my voice as an author to be able to put that together which is you know really really you know important for me because I want to write something that I feel is authentic to me and the way I would want to give that advice and the way I would want it to be written so yeah Bloom Through were brilliant. Yeah I think it's really important actually and I think you know in, in order to make sure that you have a really authentic voice coming through and you know my favourite edgy books are the ones which are written in a sort of conversational style um, the ones where actually it does feel as if the author is trying to talk to you directly I think there's a lot of space you know there's space on my bookshelves as there always will be for those books which are let's say more sort of, you know I'm trying to think of the right word but they sort of you know they've done a lot there's a lot of research involved there's a lot of sort of academic study and a lot of sort of experimentation and things like that and it's all you know and it follows that sort of, almost a scientific method of sorts um yeah. so, um but i think there's definitely space and i think it's it's one it's it's something which i really like about some edgy books especially this one about the fact that it is conversational it's very down to earth and it does speak to you as a teacher as an ect as an ect mentor it's a real heart you know it's really really um you know, really important. Uh, and I want to talk about the title. Um, you know, you mentioned positivity and something about shining through. Why you got this? Was that a title which you decided very early on? Something that, you know, had been sort of a hallmark of your offer on Twitter, TCTs and NQTs in the past? Or was it something you took a bit of time to think about? It it very much, um, even the first conversation I had with the, the publisher and we both found at that very first meeting that the title needed to be you got this it was um when i started the the account i will um my friend uh worked with trying to great gain traction on twitter and he'd done some social media work where he was working he said oh you know you almost you always need to include a hashtag in whatever you're doing you always need to make sure you're trying to tag in and link in as many people as possible and he said, don't try not, if you can, try and find a hashtag that already exists because then there's a, there's a space in a market for it. So it just happened to be that, you know, again, being very positive, very affirming, you know, just trying to reassure people, actually, you've got this. And, you know, grammatically, you've got this would have sat slightly better with me. But the hashtag that was already there was you got this. So that kind of became my trademark very early on that actually, no, you, you, you can do this. Absolutely. You've got this. You just need to have that confidence in yourself. And. Um, and yeah, in that very first meeting with the the publisher, she talking about, you know, what want to call it. And she said, you know, use this hashtag a lot. And I said, absolutely, that would be what I would want it to be. And it would be about that sense of thriving as an ECT, giving people that sense of I can do this. I am completely capable of every, you know, all the skills and the tools that I need to be successful at this job. But it's sometimes it's about that that guidance to be able to use them in the most effective way possible. And sometimes that sense of reassurance that actually what I am doing is the right thing to be doing. And sometimes I think, you know, there are probably chapters in the book that people will get a lot from, you know, some new things some new strategies. But equally, there may be some elements think, oh, actually, I'm already doing that. And there's that sense of, OK, that's a good thing. You know, somebody else is recommending this. And I'm already doing it. That's a real positive. And I've, you know, I've read books like that before that you think, oh, that's a new thing. Think, oh, but actually, I'm already doing that. Oh, that makes me feel a bit better about it, that, that you know, I'm doing the right things already. So there's that that sense of 
supporting them in improving their practice but equally that sense of you know you are doing a great job we know teaching is a tough job and we all you know give it our all and we do the best that we can and sometimes we need those opportunities to to reflect as we do it as you know guiding people towards in the book but equally that sense that actually you are doing the best you can and absolutely you can do this and as I say you've got this you can do this you've just got to have that belief and that that confidence in the skills that you've got to enable you to do that effectively. Mm. Yeah, all really, really interesting points. Um, in terms of your book, then you've got sixty thousand words. You said thirteen chapters. Um, is it something which is best read chronologically from start to finish, or is it a dip in and out sort of book? But, uh, there's that flexibility with it. And when we originally discussed the the structure of the book. There was that sense of actually writing it chronologically may be really supportive. So at different times in an ECT's induction period, there are times when things are more important than others. So um, it starts with securing your ECT position. So that's very much that that's where we're starting with. Then that sense of the next chapters around actually what should you expect from your induction? What's that going to look like for you? How can you get the most out of the induction process? And that so it, those two bits kind of start then that that, chronolo- that chronology, and then it was then starting to think about well actually trying to unpick the order in which um, events may occur during the year. So trying to fit some chronology to it, but equally as you're moving through, there are bits that you can dip in and out of. So um, as I said, first couple of chapters, getting you set up, knowing what to expect, that you can you know get a good grip to things if we even start in September and then the next chapter is about setting up in September that's often I get asked a lot about on Twitter you know what should I be doing and that varies from everybody different to everybody but it was that next sense of okay well this is from chronologically this is the next point that we're going to and then after that it's then the bits and pieces that may be more personal to different times in the year. So that that self-care and managing workload, there are bits in there that you can think of actually before I start my job, how can I protect my well-being at that point? But equally during the year, actually, I'm finding this difficult. Let's revisit this chapter and think about, OK, what what can I employ to support me with my workload? And again, just as you're kind of weaving through, things become more important than others as you're going through that year. So um, some things like um, data and assessment, that could be a chapter that, you know, you're approaching a data drop. You've got pupil progress meetings coming up that you think, actually, this is now more of a pertinent time to read this. So it feels more that that fits in at that point. So you can dip in, but equally there is a uh, there's a, a chronology there that should hopefully support you in as you're meeting these different events throughout the year they are there to support you and then the last chapter is about well you know you've completed your induction or coming to the end of induction where do we go to next and how do you kind of set those really meaningful kind of career goals moving forward as well as thinking about what can you start to do as you get towards the end of induction to start you know creating those the stepping stones if you like into those next that next phase in your career and I really like that we use the term early career teacher now and I think there's that rather than a newly qualified um, because I think early career teacher does feel like it's more encompassing of those who are in their PGCE coming to the end of their um, edu- bachelor of education or bachelor of arts in education uh, all the way through to those in the second even their third possibly in their fourth year of teaching 
that we are in this early career kind of phase because teaching you know there are um people out there and i pretty much came almost straight through a degree and then a pgce you know i've got 40 years of, of, of my teaching career and actually i think the first you know that first four or five years are in your early career point you are learning so much in that time and you know i think we all do this we reflect back on where we were at that point in our career and think oh gosh you know i've learned how much i've come on since that point so i think that that term early career teachers a really nice one to to be able to kind of share that experience with but equally then as i said that last chapter is about thinking about well where do i want to go to next as i finish off that early career and become more of an established teacher in a setting my school in the the phase in the subject that i'm tra- that I, i'm teaching in and how do i establish myself and move that forward Absolutely. And I, yeah, and I, I like how you mentioned, obviously, we now talk about early career teachers rather than newly qualified teachers. And I felt as if the book mirrored quite nicely and the structure of the book mirrored quite nicely the early career framework, which is split into five key areas, starting with professional behaviours, then moving on to behaviour management, then curriculum, then pedagogy, and then assessment. For those people, and I know it may be different in different in before different nations of the United States, mm-hmm. But um, for, to those people who may not have be working closely with ECTs at the moment, um, what is the early career framework and how is it different and how is an ECT different to an NQT? Yeah, and that's a really interesting one because I think there are the introduction of the early career framework, I think was a great leveller for me. That's kind of what I see it as. So an NQT used to have one year induction and over that time, they would be professional development opportunities. They would have their 10% release time over that year and have a mentor, an NQT mentor, which is the title that I held at that point, who would see them through their induction. They would provide them with CPD opportunities, signpost um, other uh, development activities, um, arrange for external CPD training, as well as making that judgment against the teacher standards for them at the end of their induction, so the end of that NQT year. Whereas with the introduction of the ECF, the ECF itself is that um, minimum entitlement of training in CPD. So that's where that element sits. The ECF itself is this is what I should be, have an opportunity to engage with as an ECT and schools can choose how they do that. Many, and the vast majority will choose to use an external provider who deliver, monitor, provide training for the mentor in that way to deliver that content, as you said, around those five different areas of the ECF, that they will have content delivered over the two years in order to develop them professionally. The mentor, their role within the school now is to provide, I always talk to it as about close to practice support. So they could be somebody who isn't on the senior leadership team. They could be a, um, a phase leader, another subject um, leader in a department or another subject teacher in a department. And their role is to support the ECT with those day-to-day uh, interpretation of the ECF. And their role is really important in the contextualization of the ECF. And that's where I think some of the materials are still developing. Um, one of the providers I work for, some great materials out there, but they are often, you get one piece of material and that could be uh, a key stage three or key stage four example, and you're having to employ it with an early years teacher. So you have to be able to, as a mentor, contextualize the content of the ECF. What does it look like 
in this school? What does it look like in this phase, in this subject, with this year group? So you can make that contextualization. So that's where that support really comes in. With the introduction of the ECF came this two-year induction now and the separation out of the mentor and the induction tutor role, which I think is hugely, hugely beneficial. As an NQT mentor, I always felt that I was kind of straddling this kind of line between support and, want of a better word, judgment, that you had to do this almost this clever dance as to where you needed to be at different times of the year. And this sometimes made it quite challenging for NQTs to be open and honest about how they were feeling. So if they were finding things difficult, yes, I was the person that was going to offer them support and be there with them. But equally, I'm going to be the person making that recommendation against the teacher standards. So opening up about thing, finding things difficult, sometimes it made it challenging because they for that fear of judgment that, oh, I'm going to display a weakness here and then that might come back against me. Um, in that judgment against the teacher standards that separation now so that mental being purely about the ECF delivery you know supporting that close to practice without that the making that judgment against the teacher standards so it's removing that sense of judgment that they are there purely for support the induction tutor oversees their induction and their entitlements to the ECF but their role is to compile all the paperwork, to liaise with the appropriate body. That's the group who will sign you off ultimately and make that recommendation through to the DFE that, yes, you've passed in, successfully passed induction. They will carry out um, termly progress review points as well as those formal assessment periods at the end of each year, making that recommendation that at the end of the first year, yes, you are on track to meet the teacher standards. And at the end, yes, you've successfully demonstrated the teacher standards to complete induction. So that's where it's kind of that that real shift in, for me, really, and which I think is hugely important. But what's also important for ECTs to remember is the ECF is an entitlement as part of your induction. It doesn't necessarily link with your induction so your induction is your judgment against the teacher standards and that successful completion again of a demonstration of the teacher standards at the end of those two years your ecf content is to support you in doing that it's not a, a prerequisite it's not an essential and a really kind of clear example i can do this is they've made um provision so if for example um, an ect has been teaching abroad or a teacher has been teaching abroad for 10 years and has not completed ECT induction. If they return to the UK as an experienced teacher, as they would be at that point, they can complete induction within a term. So their induction would be completed, but of course they wouldn't necessarily be exposed to the entirety of the ECF curriculum, as it were, in that time. But they can still be successful in induction. And that's the same even over the two years, that if you know there are elements of the ECF that you, you know, for whatever reason you haven't been able to engage with or things are missing, that's not going to stop you from being successful in your induction. Your induction is a separate thing. That judgment against the teacher standards is a separate thing. Mm -hmm. But your ECF is your entitlement to that support, that CPD, and that minimum entitlement during your training, during yeah. your induction. It's important, but you've been talking about it as an a minimum entitlement and as a level. Yeah. Um, because when I, when I was an NQT, as I was, um, in my second year as a teacher, um, when I was an art, what we, you know, that relic of a past called an RQT, a recently qualified teacher, yeah. I, I had a mentor and I had time and I had additional PPA. But I know that 
it wasn't the same in every other school. And so the good thing about the ECT and making that induction for, you know, formalizing that induction process as a two year process, I think is really, really important about ensuring that every teacher who is new to profession is receiving the same minimum entitlement. Um, yeah as part of their induction into the profession. So now here's a slightly difficult question, I think. If an ECT, having read your book and having looked at um, what they're entitled to as part of your induction, feels as if they're not receiving that in yeah. their for whatever reason, it might be that they're regularly being used to cover um, as part of their 10% PPA. It may be that they don't have the regular meetings with a mentor that they're entitled to. It might be that their mentor doesn't have time off a time off um one lesson a week in order to meet and has to meet after school no time being given back in lieu what should that ect do if they feel as if they're not receiving that minimum entitlement absolutely i think that's a really good question to ask because i think it's, it's hugely important that ects know what their their rights are and there's a great document um I say great, in the looser sense of the term. Um, it's one of those things that if you read it for bedtime reading, it'll help you nod off. But in there, it contains all of the statutory entitlements that you're there. So it's the um, in statutory induction guidance for ECTs. In there, it tells you everything that you are entitled to. If you are not getting your entitlement, as you said, things like, you know, not having that additional 10% or um, often... For secondary teachers, it's how it's calculated is really complicated. So it's about making sure that you are getting an equivalent 10%. So the, it talks about as a secondary teacher, you should be teaching 10% less than, any, than another teacher who holds no additional responsibilities or has no additional release time. And that can vary from school to school. So you may have a school, um, a school that has 25 sessions a week and actually the average teacher teaches 21 of those sessions. So has four free sessions. As an ECT, you should have 10% less than that 21. In a different school, you might have 27 sessions across the week and another class teacher would teach 24 of those. So you would have 10% less than, than that. So it gets a little bit more complicated in secondary. So it's about really understanding that as an ECT so that if it, you're not getting your entitlement you can kind of request it and I'll come back to the mentoring thing in a moment so if you are finding that as an ECT you're not getting that entitlement your first protocol would be your induction tutor and having that conversation their job is to coordinate induction and they may have multiple ECTs that they're supporting but they need to make sure there's parity across and that everybody's having their entitlement if you don't get any jury with your ECT induction tutor you can speak to your head if that's not the ECT induction tutor. And in some smaller schools, it may be the same person. If the head is unable to help, then the next protocol will be the appropriate body. And this is one thing I talk about in the book. And whenever I um, work with our trainees who are just about to step out into, the, into their ECT induction, I will say to them, you need to ask and make sure you know, have a, a name of somebody at the appropriate body. There should be, you should be told this as part of your induction into the school, that this is the appropriate body that we're working with. This is your named contact here. If for any reason your school are not fulfilling their responsibility, that's another place that can support you. They have the power to come in, support the school. And it's not about a, a judgment. They don't necessarily have the power to um, kind of um, affect the school in that way but they can come in and offer that support to make sure those things 
are happening to make sure that you know they're having those conversations on your behalf to say oh look ect is not getting the time they need they're not getting that time with the mentor that's requested they're not getting the ppa time it keeps being taken for cover as you said earlier you know this is a and their entitlement and their minimum entitlement we need to be ensuring that this is happening so they can have that conversation with you if after that things aren't happening the next port of call would be your union and this is something you know i always advocate for and it doesn't matter which union you choose to join and you know as an ECT, you can join multiple ones for minimal um, and minimal contribution at that point of your first year. Join multiple ones and see which one fits best with you. But please join a union. They give great protection and will support you if you need them moving forward. With the mentoring side of things, it's a really interesting one. And this is a, a trickier one because in the first year, the budget is there for mentors to be released from teaching but it comes to schools as part of the delegated budget so it's not ring fenced as mentor release time so often gets lost but it is there so when a school registers they've got an ect in that april the money will be there for the release time for the mentor but it's in that delegated budget so it easily gets consumed in the second year it is ring fenced. So the, in the second year, it comes through identified as mentor release time funding. And the release time in the second year is different. It works out as an hour per fortnight rather than an hour per week. Mm. So the funding is there, but it gets lost in that school budget in the first year. And quite often I get mentors asking, like, I'm not getting the money. There's no money. I'm not getting the release time for it. It is there. But sadly, it comes through in the same pot as everything else, which is often why then it gets hidden and gets a little bit lost in things. In the second year, it is ring fence when it comes through that this is money for doing this. It's clearly um, demarcated on the budget that comes through. So that's just something to be really, really mindful of that, you know, our mentors are aware that actually that money is there for them and they need to be requesting that release time because the funding is there for them to have that time with the ECT to be able to coach them and work with them through the ECF materials and develop their practice in relation to the five areas of the ECF. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really good insight there. So thank you very much for that. And I'm sure that's going to be really, really useful for ECTs listening back to this. I've got a couple of other troubleshooting questions ECT-wise. Um, Interestingly, of course, I, I, I'm a mentor, but for trainee teachers rather than for ECTs. And I don't think I've mentioned the teacher standards once in any of my mentoring conversations with trainee teachers because um, the core content framework, it kind of uses the teacher standards, but not to the extent that it did before. Um, yeah. And so if you're an ECT and the teacher standards are something you've come across but are still relatively new to you and you're told by your induction tutor or by your head teacher or by your mentor that you need to be collating evidence that you're meeting the teacher standards unless you're in Wales where I'm and Nathan's here tonight and I'm sure he can tell us that if you are a new teacher in Wales I believe you do have to collate evidence uh, but you're meeting the teacher standards if you're told as an ECT in England or in Scotland um, or in Northern Ireland that you need to be collating evidence that you're meeting the teacher standards is that a myth and if it is a myth what should you do yeah yeah to tell them Mr T says no 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 you do not have to collate evidence and Oh, historically, there has never been anywhere in any of the guidance that says about NQTs or ECTs now collating evidence. And in the new statutory guidance, it either it even states that there should be no need to collate evidence or produce any new evidence in order to be recommended or to, in order to demonstrate 
um, successful completion of the teacher standards or uh, against induction. And it talks about it not being burdensome. So it even identifies you know, key language there that it shouldn't be doing it. What should be happening is that as part of your progress review points with your induction tutor, they may say to you, talk to me about really effective marking, depending on what your school looks like. And it's an easy one to draw examples of. Talk to me about effective feedback, how you're using the school's marking policy to give effective feedback. At that point, you may say, hang on a minute, I'll go and get some of the children's books, the pupils' books, go and get the books. You show them examples of this. That then gets recorded as part of the form, the review form that gets sent off to the appropriate body. And that's it. You do not need to be photocopying it. You don't need three examples of each of the bullet points of the teacher standards. It is complete and utter, utter myth. And what really frustrates me about this is because it is I've known NQTs who've been asked to produce these folders of evidence who at the time of their sign off, the folder hasn't even been opened. It's just been looked at. Hmm. You know, it's almost like I put it on the scales. Yes, it weighs enough. Therefore, you're going to be successful. It's not there's no process to it. There's no benefit to it at all for you as an ECT or historically as an NQT. It's about you being able to have the professional conversations and those professional um, a professional dialogue being captured in those reports with your induction tutor about evidence that you've shown so they can say to you can you show me evidence of this and you say absolutely I will go and get some people's work I'll go and get some examples of my planning I'll go and get you some examples of slides I've used and the activities that I've been producing absolutely fine then that can be captured you should not be producing a folder full of evidence or collating any evidence together in order to complete induction you are right, though, Tom, if you are in Wales, sadly, that's not the case. And you do have to produce that. But you get a one year induction as a payoff. So, you know, and you can also compete on short term supply in Wales, which you can't in England. So swings and roundabouts. <laughs> My next troubleshooting question, and it's one which I had many arguments about when I was a new teacher, was is is there an a requirement that as a new teacher you log how you are using your additional time whether that's 10 percent in the first year or five percent of the second year is there any requirement that you need to log the activities and the things that you're doing in that time no i say in kind of that slightly paused way is um because your induction tutor should be outlining any additional cpd opportunities that are available to you anyway. So any additional courses, visits to other schools, observation opportunities. So that would be logged in that way. So that's kind of, that's that side of it. The reason I kind of said it in a slightly no way mm -hmm. is as part of the ECF and part of your ECT time, there will be activities for you to engage with, with the ECF. So often there are um, reading videos to watch, examples for you to look at, and then to complete reflections about during that. So that kind of is a, is a record of your engagement with CPD during your ECT time. But that's as far as it should go, really. You shouldn't be having to, as you say, kind of write down this day I did this, this day I did this. That should be the induction tutor should have that oversight of exactly what you've been engaging with. And equally, there are sometimes, and I used to do this deliberately with my NQTs, is at least one NQT time every half term, I'd have a, a check in with them for the first kind of the part from the afternoon. I would say, How's everything going? Everything going? And then I would give them that time to just to be able to catch up on their admin and their, the, you know, the, the other stuff that, you know, it takes at that time as a teacher that 
at that point in your teaching career takes that a little bit longer. So that that time could be really, really well spent as well, just to be able to have that time to just give yourself room to catch up and breathe. But yes, so the induction shooter should hold that information anyway. And but there will be activities depending on your provider that you will be completing that will kind of be your your record of your engagement with the ECF. Mm. Well, yeah, I remember when I was a new teacher, I had my 10% log that I had to complete in my first year, my 5% log, and I had to say the extra things I was doing and how, how it demonstrated progress towards the teacher standards. And towards the end of my second year as a teacher in my 5% log, I used to write, I had to do one entry a week, and I used to write, I spent my 5% time filling in this log, and it's working towards teacher standards, professional behaviours, etc. Um, yeah. yeah, and... Fortunately, I don't think anybody looked at it because I never got told off for it or anything. Um, but with the advice, I, I mean, completely off topic now, the advice I always give to my students when they're writing long pieces of work as a history teacher is put in a little phrase halfway through a paragraph to see if your teacher's actually reading it. My favourite was, I am a fish, um, which I would so, sort of slot midway through a paragraph, an extended essay, to see if anybody was actually bothering to read it. Um, one of my year 12s actually... Um, played this trick on but fortunately i managed to see it um another question is about ofsted um in england certainly um because as a trainee teacher when ofsted come to your school where you are a trainee they're not coming to see you and you are not going to be seen with ofsted and in fact you're not expected to teach um you can be pa um, and you can sort of help around with jobs in that school, but you don't teach an offset, don't see you as a training teacher. Yes, obviously, okay. obviously, if offset are coming to inspect your training provider, um, yeah. do a judgment on that, but they may wish to see you teach. As an ECT, in say your first term or your first year or your second year, what should ECTs be aware of when it comes to Ofsted? Are they likely to be observed? And will often inspectors want to talk to them about being an ECT? So as an ECT with Ofsted, it, uh, it's one of those, it depends questions. So if, um, for example, as we know, Ofsted will choose a subject to deep dive into. So if you are in a secondary school, you're in that, you teach in that department, it may be that you are observed teaching as part of their triangulation about, okay, you're telling me that this is the content that's being taught at this point in time of the year, and it's taught and delivered in this way in order to get this impact. I'm going to come and have a look, and I'm going to look at a few lessons. So you may be observed in that aspect to triangulate what's being said about the why, you know, the three eyes, the um, intent, implementation and impact of, the, of what we're doing. So you may be observed teaching in that way. Same in primary, that if they're looking at geography, for example, as part of their primary curriculum, you'll happen to be teaching geography that week, you know, and, and luckily they may come and watch part of your teaching because they're saying that actually I've spoken to the subject leader and they say, tell me that in year two, in this term, you're teaching this because at this point here, and they will come and look to triangulate that. What we need to be really mindful of is they're not necessarily, they're not looking at your teaching. They're looking at kind of what you're teaching and why. And it's about that triangulation purpose. And it could even be that part of it is to do with about the, the judgments of SLT. You know, how is this trainee teaching uh, ECT performing at the moment? What are their strengths? What are things are you noticing? And they may come in to, uh, to verify the effective judgments of the SLT. It's not about you in that context. 
Equally, they may not want to see you teach at all. You may just be blissfully unaware that Ofsted are out, out observing teachers at all and they may not come into you. What they will want to speak to you about, though, is they will want to speak to you about your ECT induction. And it's part of the Ofsted train work that any ECTs will be spoken to to ensure that they are having their entitlement um they're having their entitlement for induction so are you getting the release time are you having access to the ecf as your minimum entitlement what other additional support is going on and generally do you feel supported in that school so again it's about verifying that the school are doing what they need to be doing it's not about judging you as an ect the only thing they might ask you about as potentially probably the newest member of staff is about your safeguarding induction and your understanding of the school's safeguarding processes. And that's, again, that triangulation exercise that everybody in school has a full understanding of the safeguarding processes. So realistically, as, a, as an ECT, if Ofsted arrive, I would be prepared to be, to, have, um, to be asked to speak to them about your ECT induction and how that's going. But beyond that, there may be very little contact with Ofsted whatsoever. But equally, you may have that induction conversation with a bit of safeguarding in there. And you may be observed teaching if you just happen to be teaching that subject at that point in time. But please, please, please remember, it's not about judging you at that moment in time. It's about that triangulation and looking at what's being said around the school and what's going on. And about that, it's about triangulating that, yes, this is what's happening and this is what I am. This is what the inspector is seeing happening when they come into your lesson. And it isn't about judging your teaching because teaching is something that, you know, I fundamentally stand by the fact that you cannot judge a teacher based on being in their room for 20 minutes. What we do is we, we, we I don't like to use the word judge even, we look at how effective teachers are over a period of time because that's how we can really truly measure progress. You can't measure the progress of pupils in 20 minutes that's you know nigh on impossible you may be able to spot moments of progress in that time but we look at teaching over time to look at its effectiveness so yeah that 20 minutes that they're in your or even less than that that they're in your room for they're not going to be judging you and your progress that you're around making on the impact you're having on pupils at that point it will be that triangulation Mm. Yeah, really interesting insights there. Thank you. We've had a lot of opinions being broadcast on Teachers Talk Radio over the last few weeks and months about Ofsted. And I can only speak from my personal experience get Ofsted in about a month ago. Um, and, you know, me personally, and I think it depends much on who's in the route, who's in your school. I think it depends very much on who the inspectors are. But I, I've, ten, I've found that waiting for Ofsted is much worse than the experience itself. Now, yeah. obviously, Lots of people have had very different experiences and very negative experiences with Ofsted, and um, I think they deserve to be listened to as much. But my personal experience, and I know it's one that's been mirrored by other people in other schools, is that the fear of waiting for Ofsted is much greater than the fear of Ofsted actually being there themselves. And my experience has been broadly positive. Um, Now, for those of you who are listening live at the moment who have just joined us, a very good evening. We are joined tonight on Teachers Talk Radio by Andrew Taylor, better known as Mr T's NQTs, to talk all about his new book, You Got This, Thriving as an Early Career Teacher. It's published by Bloomsbury and you can get a 10% discount on You Got This direct on their website at bloomsbury.com forward slash 
UK. We've also had other Bloomsbury shows this week on Tuesday. Um, we had Scott Evans. He was talking about 100 ideas for primary teachers reading for pleasure. He was with Ben Thomas, and you can catch up on that show and the Twilight Show at ttradio.org forward slash listen back. Tomorrow at 11am, while you're still on your Easter holidays, why not tune in and listen to John McGee with Poppy Gibson talking about his new book, The Happy Tank. He really is a tour de force in the world of kindness. And published today with Bloomsbury was Sarah Wardlaw's Word Laws book, Time to Shake Up the Primary Curriculum, a groundbreaking book that will ensure that every child feels seen and will help teachers become more inclusive. And Sarah is going to be talking very soon to our very own Lucy Newberg, so keep your eyes peeled for that show. We've also got some fantastic Teachers Talk Radio debut shows coming up this week. Tomorrow at 9pm, we have our first teaching assistant host, Damon Carr. He's going to be talking about school funding with his guest, Rich Amponsa, who works in a pupil referral unit. And on Sunday at 11am, we are back on Twitter Spaces when Sabrina Mukadam will be hosting her debut show on the Sunday Social. Now, I really want to delve, Andrew, into the nitty-gritty, and you talked about your chapter structure and the book structure. I want to delve much more into this, and I want to talk about things like, for example, the daily tips. So you've been posting lots of tips on Twitter. Was it an easy decision to have those daily tips put into your book and interspersed in different chapters as well? Yeah, I, I, uh, it, it was kind of an easy decision. It felt very kind of natural and very... Um, again that extension of what I do on, on Twitter to include those in there and it you know it, it is something that I, I do regularly put out those daily tweets and those daily tips that that come through just again there's little tidbits is just to get people thinking and um getting ECTs and actually some experienced teachers just to think about other ways of doing things or just signposting resources that um are out there that people may not be fully aware of and I think you just hugely valuable to kind of share that knowledge and even sometimes just to start a conversation um about kind of approaches that people are using and 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 how to work in that way so yeah so including those into the book were really uh, really important to me but also it gave that chance to almost to break up the structure a little bit so they give nice little signposts at the end of each kind of section within a chapter before then that, that transition to the next point the next area that we're looking at and also there are little kind of dip in bits so you can just kind of have a look through and kind of glean bits that you've that are more fully expanded later on in the book or fully unpicked further on that you can just kind of glean like oh okay that's a really good little tip that I can use and I can um, move that forward in my own practice and like I said as you read further through it you can pick up more depth around it in that way and yeah it is that that extension of what I do on Twitter and trying to replicate that in 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 book form really mm -hmm. thank you and building moving on from the daily tips um the coaching moments that you include mm -hmm. well so for example right at the start of a book where you talk about um your entitlement as part of ucf you talk about you have the coaching moment you've got the three key questions there how will you access the ucf materials which providers your school using when will you meet with your mentor what's the rationale behind those coaching moments in each of your chapters I think for me, it was about that engagement with the audience and thinking about how 
how they can reflect on our NECT or anybody picking up the book and think about actually how does this relate to me? What what am I doing at the moment? And you know, the example ones that you pick out there are very kind of almost like quite factual ones, you know, okay, well, which provider am I using? Having that conversation with the um with the school to be able to find that out, you know, when will I be meeting with my mentor? So there's a very kind of like, yeah, this is what I'm I'm doing. These are very factual ones. And then at other points, it's you know, things like reflecting on what quality first teaching strategies that currently using in your teaching so have after and picking those getting and um, trying to think about well, actually what am i doing already that's really effective and you know as we know with te- as, as as teachers and i uh, did this for for years you you do things because you find that they work and sometimes you don't always understand why they work you just know that, that they do work so sometimes it's that opportunity to think about okay what am i doing and just have those moments of okay, no, I am doing that and I am doing that and I am doing that. These are things that I'm doing that are going to be enabling all of my pupils to be to be learning in the classroom, to be effective. And it's just that moment of, those moments to reflect on your own practice and then think about what's been said in the book and how then that relates to you as an ECT, as an individual. And, and from what I do on Twitter, I always want to, I'm a very relational, relationship-driven person and that, that ability to relate to people is really important to me so it was it was kind of finding that that ground really to be able to have that that conversation and build a relationship with the reader whilst not really not being there at all so it was that opportunity to engage them in reflection and be able to kind of think it through and almost engage them in a conversation about their practices as it as it was at the moment or as it is at the moment thank you for that yeah no really good i mean coaching's fascinating and i think you know it's very important because and you know ects have a mentor and a mentor and tells people you know doesn't necessarily tell them what to do but gives them advice when it's required and guides them through their potential options and sort of you know there's there's a clear there's a clear hierarchy i suppose between mentor and mentee yes. but coaching is very different to somebody who's been a mental and a coach i think coaching is so so important in terms of helping people come to their own conclusions and sort of dominate the thought process themselves in terms of the journey they're going on and in terms of how they can make their own improvements without somebody telling them this is what you need to do but ensuring that the coach that the coachee um recognizes what's happening and you know our in my role at the moment as a literacy coordinator, I remember just before um, Easter holidays, I was sat in I was sat in one of my meetings with one of my SLT links, and he was coaching me um, through you know delivering some old school CPD, and I, I didn't realise until I sort of left the room and I was like, oh my word, I've just been coached. He's made <laughs> lead the answer out of my own thought process rather than telling me, well actually you should do this. He's made me go, oh actually yeah, I think I should probably do this. You um, say so the best coaches in, in my experience are people who coach you without you knowing that you're being coached. And when you training to be a coach as I have, when when they can do that is, is absolutely majestic. Um, I've, you know, I think it's fantastic. Um, now in terms of, obviously you've got the coaching moments and I, I really yes. want to talk talk about the thoughts from an ECT because you, you've obviously got loads of experience in working with teachers who are new to the profession but you're not an ECT in the heat of the moment so it was it would have made really obvious sense to get the thoughts of an ECT into the book so tell us about the process by which you got ECTs to contribute to your book yeah and I think you 
for me, one of the things I wanted to do is you're right. You know, we, um, it's, I think it's Adrian Bethlehem talks about the, um, the curse of knowledge that as an experienced teacher, we can't always remember what it was like to not have the knowledge that we have now and being able to kind of communicate that in that very authentic way. It's really difficult. You know, I share some anecdotes and you know, my experiences from being an early career teacher an NQT or very early on in my career, but actually living and breathing it now is very different to when I started, you know, the whole education climate is very different to where we were um, when I started years ago. And so I wanted to make sure that I had that authentic voice coming through of, of ECTs. Some of the ECTs that I, I asked her in there were trainees that I'd worked with and I'd supported with or ECTs that I'd met through um, conferences that I'd worked on or um, people that I'd supported at, at university. And it was really important for me to get their voice in there. They'd had, you know, some of them I worked with a great um you know, experiences. Um, one of the um, ETTs I supported, he was a, a first year in his BA in, in, in primary education, QTS. I met him as a first year trainee. I uh, came to my classroom and so I was his kind of school mentor at that point. As he went through, I made that, that transition to working at the university. And, you know, there was still that strong connection there so wanted to to utilize his voice and his experience and um i asked him to write the part about um in the behavior manager that's establishing expectations because that was from when i was working with him i saw this as something that was hugely transformational in his practice that i was able to witness being working with him in the classroom i, thought, I wanted an opportunity to share what he'd gained you know what, how he was now as an ect and those experiences in that way and equally for all of the ects I want to amplify their voice because as teachers, we all have such a, a myriad of experiences of situations, of contexts that we're working in, you know, demographics of pupils that were, that come to the school that we're in, the structure of the school, the SLT. There are so many variables in teaching that actually there's no set formula. And, you know, this is something for me that I've, I still feel really strongly about, which is why the coaching moments are in there, because it is about drawing out from the ECT their own context, their own practice. But equally, by drawing out the voices of ECTs, I can get that wider breadth of contexts of, you know, experience primary, secondary. I'm primary trained. So my secondary experience is, is minimal. You know, I've gained some from working um, at the university and working with ECTs both primary and secondary, but, you know, my training is predominantly primary. So I want to get that secondary voice in so they could share their experiences as well. And something I always want to do um, through Twitter or whatever I do is to amplify the voices of ECTs because their, their experiences, their knowledge is, it's invaluable. And that's true of anybody at any stage of their teaching career, but for ECTs, when they're at the chalk phrase, they're learning it, sharing their experiences, sharing their pitfalls, their, you know, their successes and the things that they, you know, have found challenging, I think is really valuable and really authentic. And again, there's that sense of, I was talking way back at the start, that you've got that, it's that reassurance that actually I'm not unique. And I think as a as an ECT, if you are in a possibly a small school or even a large school and you're the only ECT, sometimes you can feel it's just me that feels this way. And um, our ECTs, that will be our second year ECTs now. So we're coming into their second year, about to, you know, working towards that end point. 
their first year would have been highly affected by COVID. So those network events would have been far more minimal. So some ECTs would have been quite isolated in schools. So being able to hear the experiences, the thoughts, the reflections of, of ECTs that are out there can be hugely reassuring and hugely empowering to know that actually, yeah, this is this is okay. I'm feeling like this. It's okay that I'm making these mistakes. It's okay that not everything goes perfect the first time. I'm doing all right. And I think, again, that's that's hugely powerful for me in that sense of building reassurance for ECTs and develop their confidence to know that, you know, they are doing their best. They're doing a great job. And hearing that from the voices of other ECTs is hugely important. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I, I really it spoke to me the point that you made about ECT some ECT has been quite isolated especially in the post-COVID landscape and I think for an ECT it can make a big difference if you're say the only ECT in a school compared mm. if you're in there with you know half a dozen or even more ECT yeah. um, and obviously that may depend on the size of the school and other factors but yeah I think some ECTs can be quite isolated now because we've got a lot of people in this space at the moment very good evening to everybody who's joined um, because we've got a lot of people here who I've had a look through the profiles um a lot of them are coming to the end of their pgces um with their final year ba ed um or just going to be stepping in one way or another to becoming an ect in september i want to talk about one of those early chap that early chapter in your book about securing your first teaching role um because it can be quite a daunting undulating I'm mentoring a trainee at the moment who, you know, he went for his first interview before Easter. He's a career changer, so he's in his early 30s. And he said it's like nothing he'd ever done before, the interview process. He didn't get the job and he felt very disheartened about it. But I said, but it, you know, it would be a really, really useful learning curve. And my sister-in-law went for two um, teaching jobs as an AEM trainee um, before Easter, didn't get either of them. So it can be quite a daunting process it'd be quite a you know a pro a negative process i sense in the sense that you feel like as if you've given everything and they don't get the job at the end so what are your what are the tips that you sort of give for ect securing their first teaching role whether that's in the application process or in the interview process you're absolutely right and i think that's something that's really reassuring to hear that um Every time a job opens up, there are going to be more people who are unsuccessful than successful in getting that job. So I think that's something that's really, really important that any ECT listening remembers that, you know, it. not that you should set up yourself up to fail and you shouldn't be going with it that you think, no, I want this. I will be successful. But that realisation that it, it it's OK, that if I'm not successful on that first job interview, it doesn't mean I'm not going to be successful moving further down the road. This time of year, we're still quite early in the recruitment cycle and there will be lots of experienced teachers uh, who may be relocating, maybe looking for a, career, a, a change of school, a change of um, uh, or further possibilities coming out of it that will also be looking for jobs. And one thing I will always say, and it comes through in the book, you cannot mitigate for what other people have that you don't. So if you're up against somebody with 15 years experience, that can often mean, you know, if they're if the school is looking for somebody with experience, that's possibly potentially where they're going to go for. Equally, having said that, I know that I've been in a school where we've actually given the job to an ECT over somebody with experience because experience doesn't or how can I put this? Time in schools doesn't necessarily always equate to the right to the experiences that you're looking for. 
as a as a as a school that you're looking for you're looking for those that person that's the right fit for your school and that's hopefully comes through in the re- in the book as well is that when you're looking for the application process and i see people talking on twitter saying like oh no just apply for everything and i'm a, a bit like oh please be mindful of doing that because it takes a lot of effort to go through that application and interview process and it takes its toll toll physically and emotionally on you you're putting together an application that's suited to that school that shows that you understand what that school offer what their values are how you would fit in that school and there are you know there are elements that are very often very generic to the person spec that you will be asked to write against so things like manage behavior effectively those between you can share you know really nice examples of what you how you manage behavior or your views on education and how you teach effectively so you know those things that you will kind of stand in every application but when you're thinking about how it fits with that school that takes the time so how does how you manage behavior align with the school's behavior policy how does what you view as effective teaching align with the school's teaching and learning policy it takes a time and it takes a toll then you've got the interview stage, which often involves you at least the bare minimum is you're going to have a panel interview. You have to teach a lesson. So you need to prep that lesson. You have to be teaching something that shows you at your best. There's a lot of work involved in there. So what I always advocate for is apply for schools where you would want to work. And it's fascinating for me. I've, I've you know, Tom, a similar situation that, you, I, you know, when I've worked with trainees before and I've, I've had a group of trainees that have all visited the same school. Two of them have come back to me and said, like, oh, no, I wouldn't want to work there. One of them's like, oh, that would be an amazing place to work. I can't wait to do it. And it's really personal. And you you will find that school that when you walk in, you think, yeah, I could be happy here. And I often get asked, like, oh, what questions should I be asking when I'm going on a tour of a school or a school visit? That's my question is, would I be happy working here? If you can answer that question, then you'll know whether to apply or not. When you're going for that visit, it's about you establishing whether that's the right school for you. The head will give you the sales pitch. They'll want to get it. They'll be getting a sense of you. But what you need to do to make the best impression is be reflecting on, like I said, is this the right school for you? Would you want to apply there? Could you see yourself working in that environment? But equally, as you're going around, you're being shown things, you'll spot things that naturally um, intrigue you or naturally come up in conversation. Those are the questions to ask. So it is about that. Oh, um, I noticed you talked about this. I've, you know, how have you found this? Because my placement school, you know, they're using this method as well, and um, you know, have identified a few a few teething issues with it. How have you found it? You can start to engage, and that shows that you're listening, you're taking things in. So even at that point, you're going to be making a a, um, a decision as to do I want to apply for this school? Because then you've got the application and then the interview to go through. And you're right as you were saying you know it is exhausting because you know you are going to put yourself out there emotionally and you are putting yourself out there to be judged and to be rejected and that's that's not a nice position to be in um personally i do not do well in interviews i have been more unsuccessful in interviews than i have been successful over my teaching career and the times i've gone for job interviews but i know it's like i said it's something that is part of that that process but i learned something from each interview you go to and what 
I'm a firm believer in is that you will end up in the school that is right for you. And if you haven't got that school that you went to, there will be another opportunity that comes up. And actually, when you get that opportunity and that's one that's successful, you very quickly forget about the one that's gone beforehand. There's always that sense of, I don't want to use the word competition, but that sense of competition between uh, trainees at this point in the year, who's already secured a, guard, a job, secured a job for September and those who haven't. And the ones who haven't often feel that pressure. I've got to get a job. I've got to get a job. What I will always say again is, not having a job right at this moment in time may feel quite stressful, but as soon as you get a job, that stress dissipates. The worst thing you can do is to get a job that's the wrong job in a school that doesn't align with your values, a school that may be further commute than you anticipated, a school potentially where you've been flattered into accepting a job there that actually didn't really feel quite right. Um, amount of times of you know ECT said oh I, you know I was on a placement there I didn't really get that much support but you know they offered me this job they made me feel really wanted and I take the job and actually the support's still not there and I'm really struggling you know you, you've got to remember that you know you've got to make that right decision for you because ultimately what you are doing is you are choosing a school that will be judging you against your successful completion of the induction period. So make sure you're in a school where you feel, yeah, I'm happy to work here. I would like to work here. And I'm happy to be, to be judged by you and to make that recommendation for me against the teacher standards. All of those bits, you know, weighing up how you apply to the right school. When you are applying, give real examples in your application form. So share your best lesson that you've taught. That often comes up when you talk about teaching. Share your views on um, managing behaviour. That's really, really important. And when you're in the interview and you're asked a question, if you can draw on real life examples, that's when I always see the teachers coming to life, when I'm interviewing anybody, when they kind of start to think about lessons that they've taught, children, that pupils that they've worked with, how they've supported them. That's when they come to life. And that's when you can see the teacher emerging. What you need to avoid is your application being a carbon copy of everybody else on your course, because everybody's taught lessons, everybody's managed behaviour, everybody's marked and given feedback. What you need to do is bring out those specific examples that show you as a teacher. And some of the best supporting statements I've read, you can almost see the teacher in the classroom teaching because there's a really tangible examples there that you can see their values coming through off that page. And again, when you're in that interview situation, bringing those examples to life is hugely, hugely important. Massive, massively. And, you know, I, I say to people who are going to interviews, um, when, when, whether you're in the interview or whether you're writing your application, but, but a nice structure to go through is talk about what you do, how you've done it, what the impact has been, always talk about, you know, it's that jo classic John Hattie phrase, no vi impact. And yeah. it, you know, well, actually, yes, I've used this strategy. How has it helped the students in my classroom become better students at whatever yeah. and progress? And then once you've done that, say how I'm then going to use that in your school so yeah. i use this strategy least i mean let's use a teach like a champion strategy i use least invent least invasive intervention um to promote good behavior so i do this phrase blah 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 this means that students don't necessarily feel called out i avoid conflict and i ensure that as many students as possible are um, and are focused and 
contributing to the lesson and doing what they're meant to be doing without having to um, sort of like call out students directly. And I can do this in your school to build positive relationships with the students I yeah. And just going through that process where you go through, this is what I do, this is what the impact is, this is how I'm going to do it in your school, is really, really useful. And I like the point you made about going up against experienced teachers as well. And it's always really important to note, especially for those people in listening to the space and back to a podcast who are going for their first job. Yes, somebody might have been teaching for 15 years, but if they haven't kept up to date with training, if they haven't been... Yeah latest trends and initiatives in teaching they may as well have just been teaching for one year 15 times on yeah. and actually as a new teacher you are up to date with the latest trend in teaching uh, you'll have had good experience from the early career framework you'll know that it's a for example it's adaptive teaching not differentiation anymore and yeah. you'll be able to bring that up-to-date perspective and that that a lot of schools really want so yeah i think some really really good ideas there i want to talk about now once you again another chapter once you've got your job and you start in september in january or in april or whenever you start um and you get a billion and one things that you have to do and how do how does an early career teacher go about managing that workload that's i think i think workload is one of those elements that is it is a challenge for the role and there are not enough kind of hours within the school day. And, you know, it'd be lovely if we could complete our job between 8.30 and 3.30 every day. That would be, you know, an ideal. Um, but it is about, for me, it's about prioritising, about really identifying what's going to make the biggest impact on the pupils. And I'm a huge advocate for blocking your time and thinking, OK, school day, you know, Pupils leave at 3.30. I want to leave this building at 5, 5.30, whatever your time limit is. What do I need to achieve in that, that time to be effective? And always prioritise those things that are going to make the biggest impact on pupil learning, pupil progress. And for, so it could be actually the mark, books need marking for tomorrow. Um, that display needs a bit of titivating, you know, the, the board roll around the edges starting to come off or a couple of those things could be laminated. Sometimes we get stuck in those stuck into those little jobs because they they are quick wins and they are absolutely quick wins, and they feel that you can tick those off. But sometimes it's really prioritising. Okay, I've got an hour and a half. I'm I'm going to be leaving in an hour and a half. I'm going to get my books marked. I've got ten minutes left at the end. I'm going to get my staple gun. I'm going to quickly tidy up that display. The laminating will wait till tomorrow. The other thing is always knowing your productive times of the day. So for me, I'm not a morning person. I could arrive at school at, school at seven o'clock in the morning and still achieve almost nothing by the time the pupils walk in. So for me, that that's not an effective time for me. So what I would always do is save things like, you know, the photocopying jobs or things that are very don't require a huge amount of brain power to do for those you know 20 minutes before when I get in in the morning. I would make sure that when I left the night before, because that's when I ha was productive between for me, between about four and six are my most productive times of the day i'm definitely more of an, an evening night out than i am a morning person is i would use those times to do as much as i can and i would make sure i was set up so i could walk into the class the next morning because i knew the following morning i would be not firing on all cylinders so 
the next morning, it could be that actually I've got 20 minutes. That's the time I'm going to titivate that display because actually it doesn't require a huge amount of brain power. I can stand at the laminator and laminate those two pieces of paper. I know that's a bit of a, you know, taboo word, laminating these days. But, you know, those things that, you know, those resources that we want to use year on, you know, year in, year out that are worth doing it for, you know, those that's the time when I would do those jobs. So it's about blocking your time prioritizing those things that can have the biggest impact on pupil pro pupil progress and your teaching knowing your productive times of the day actually if you're a morning person you might think no i'm going to be in by half seven in the morning that gives me a good clear hour i can get these things done get it done actually i start to flag by about half past four i'm going to do you know 10 minutes of the you know the little jobs and then the next morning i'm going to be back in again and i'm going to get it done then at that point and i don't think you know, as teachers, we should be apologising for working to what works for us. Um, and I think that, you know, find that rhythm that works for you. Also, if you know during that week you've got a staff meeting one night, you've, you know, you volunteered to do a run an after school club with a colleague, you might have parents evenings coming up. Be kind to yourself at the planning stage. Right. I know next week, you know, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Tuesday night are out of action, really, because of these events that are going on. I'm going to have much more limited time on those days. Plan or structure activities that require, you know, minimal resourcing. So actually on those days you can come in and know you're ready to go. Resource it, um, activities that can be peer marked or peer assessed. So you're not having to have those, those stacks of books. To, to mark and feel, you know, be set in a staff meeting where you're trying to, you know, get your head around a new approach to school using, thinking there's a pile of books that need to be marked, a pile of books that need to be marked, that you can really then focus and be present in that moment in time. And it's just little things like that. And in the book, there are lots more things that you can do to try and start to protect your your time and make your your time during the week work more effectively for you so that you aren't on the back foot all the time. There will be times in the year where that pressure increases. So one of the pinch points in a school year is always that run up to Christmas because you've got lots of events off happening in a school. Often it's the end of the first term. So there may be a, like a data drop. There may be people progress meetings. It can often be quite a demanding time. And also it's the longest term of the year. So you're probably going to be exhausted and on your knees. So it's that point in time that you need to kind of try and save some reserves for as well. So preempting some of those times actually i'm gonna you know there's quieter weeks <laughs> there's quieter weeks that we occasionally have i can start to block that time out to think actually i'm going to start preparing for that earlier and that can be having that conversation with your mentor your induction tutor right can you tell me which week the um pupil progress meetings will be in okay well the week before that again going to start planning my time so you're going to have time to be able to prepare fully for those pupil progress meetings so it's about knowing and making it work for you. Equally, I think as a as a teacher, you have to come to terms with that, the understanding that your to-do list will never be done mm -hmm. and that that's okay. You're never going to tick everything off. I'd often get to the end of the summer term. I'd, we usually work the first week of the summer holidays to try and get everything ready. I felt at that point I'd ticked off nearly all of the jobs for the year and then I was starting on my list for next year so then I'd have things hanging over then that I would pick up again in September coming back again but there were it was never clear my to-do list was never done and I don't think it ever will be and I think it's that recognition that that is okay 
it's about prioritizing those things that need to be done and giving those your focus when you know you're most um, effective to get those done. And then knowing that those other little bits and pieces, yes, they are important and they're there for a reason, but it's finding it's snatching those five, 10 minutes here and there to tick those little bits off your list, but using that time when you're most effective to tackle those bigger jobs that you really need your full brain capacity to be able to achieve effectively. Yeah, really, really good advice there. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, my little workload top tip, and it's a little bit naughty, I suppose, and I hope my employees aren't listening, is if a deadline's really important, they'll tell you it twice. Um, yes. They only tell you once. They're not that important. And I found this a bit of a problem sort of stepping up into almost middle leadership, I like to call it. I'm not really a middle leader, but I'm sort of one rung below, um, which is if I really want a deadline to be followed, I've got to say it twice or three times um, in order to actually get it met for something. And actually, if you only say it once, then actually it falls off people's radars and it's less important. So if you really want to... So if, if a deadline's really important, they'll come and tell you it a second time. And if an email's really important, they will repeat it. Um, anything which you're only told once it's not as important and you can have, you can afford to let a couple of things slide um as being you know as it you know as it is i've got a little bit of breaking news um ttr breaking news it's not about teaching but it's about strikes um which is that we're expecting the royal college of nursing to reject um the government's pay offer um for nurses um that nurses had been offered let me have a quick look it was five percent pay rise plus a one-off bonus averaging about six percent so slightly higher than the offer given to teachers and um, the head of the royal college of nursing pat cutter described the offer as real tangible progress um, but the royal college of nursing is expected to reject the pay offer being given to it by the government um, and the government has said that the offer is final and would not be improved sound familiar um julian keegan probably recognizes those words um it'll be interesting to see whether or not nurses reopen negotiations um with the government and whether julian keegan and the education unions would follow suit so a bit of breaking news there which is that nurses are expected to reject the government's pay offer for nurses of five percent plus an extra 1% bonus. Uh, back to the conversation with Andrew. Um, another key chapter, I suppose, and something which is really important to all ECTs, but actually all teachers, whether you've got new classes or whether you're moving to a new school or, you know, just halfway through the year after Christmas or after Easter, and we're coming back after Easter, so it might be really important, is all about establishing expectations in the classroom and around the school so as an ect who's you know you may be in primary and you've got the same class all year round or you may be in secondary and you've got a range of different classes who you may only see once a week or three times a fortnight how do you go about establishing expectations as an ect this is one that i see I've seen very often as a as an NQT mentor and as a as a new I've trained um, teachers and works with ECTs. It's there's almost sometimes there's often that assumption that the pupils know how we want them to behave. You know, when, you know, talking about like secondary people. You know, they're in year eleven. Of course, they know how to behave in a class. But actually, they've learned how to behave for other people because they've got a relationship with them. They know those people. They know there's expectations for that person in that lesson. And often, and I've seen, you know, lessons where the ECT, the NQT, the trainee has done a brilliant start to the lesson and then has said like, right, okay, 
you know, we're going to go to our places now, off you go. And at that point, it all just starts to fall apart. But uh, expectations and establishing expectations about really laying that groundwork for behaviour and 99% of the incidents that happen with behaviour can be prevented by us having really clear and um, known expectations. So part of that comes down to planning those expectations. Do you know what you expect the pupils to do? Actually, when they walk into the, even just as simple as entering into the classroom, what's that going to look like? What's it going to sound like? If you know in your head, you can then communicate that to those pupils. So actually, when you walk into the classroom, I want you walking in quietly, straight walking straight to your seats, put your bags down, sitting in the seat, eyes this way. Really, really clear instructions. If you know it, you can communicate that to the pupils. You can then also then start to use that as your as your structure for your praise. So fantastic. I can see everybody's walking in really quietly at the moment heading to their seats, fantastic, everybody's eyes are on me, I can tell that now that we're ready to learn, thank you. And you can go into it. People often talk about um, praising expected behaviour, that actually it can diminish it, you know, we're, we're praising something that we should just be expected, should just be what we're doing. And it, it's, it's about that, for me, it's about acknowledging that. So thanking somebody for doing it, you're not praising them. You are still looking for that, you know, you, you can still add that extra element on if somebody's going above and beyond what they're doing, that's when you would praise. But for those expectations, you can thank them for it. Thank you very much, class. You've all come in, you've all sat smartly, all eyes on me, we're all ready to learn. Thank you. You're acknowledging it, you're recognising it and you're reaffirming it. With those expectations, there are some pupils who will find that more challenging being consistent with your expectations is really important because for those pupils who may need that consistency you need to be consistent but one of the questions i always have up my sleeve which i use a lot particularly when embedding expectations is what should you be doing now and i have two ways of asking it of you know what should you be doing now that very kind of i want you to tell me i, I you can't see me now but my palms are up very open body language what should you be doing now and if they say to me, I don't know, you can reinforce those expectations at that point. So it's a bit, so you can go, okay, remember now we're walking to our seats, we're going to sit quietly, put our bag down, we'll be ready to learn. Or whatever expectation that you're looking at, whatever routine you're trying to create. But then equally for some of those pupils who you know know your expectations, you can kind of interrupt, right, what should you be doing now? You can adjust the tone, the palms are going down, I'm closing this off. And often that's enough to, oh, oh okay. I'm not being you know, overly confrontational. I'm not calling them out in front of everybody else. It's that quiet conversation. What should you be doing now? And it gets them back into line and to do it that way. The worst thing you can do is if you've got your expectations is to let it go. It's not about whipping out the punishments, whipping out, I don't like the word sanctions, those consequences for that, you know, giving and checking out detentions. It is about challenging and not letting it go because as soon as the, as your pupils start to see, okay, these are the expectations. Let's see if we're going with this. Okay, this person's just not following those expectations. What's the repercussions? Nothing. Oh, okay. So we've started to identify there's a problem here and the, and the pupils will pick up on it that actually you don't really mean what you say. Yes, you said these, you have these expectations, but you're now not sticking to it. It doesn't have to be confrontational. It is just that, you know, that quiet word, what should you be doing now? Show me. Yeah. Simple as that. 
Absolutely. Just, yeah, really, really clear. And I really like the point that you make, and it's one which I've always subscribed to. But you, you, you don't say well done to a kid who's met your baseline expectations. You say thank you. You say yeah. well done to the kids who have done something really good, who have gone above and beyond, who have produced a really, really good piece of work, who have made an excellent contribution. It's a well done to them, but it's a thank you for people who are meeting, the, for students who are meeting the baseline expectations. And it really, really frustrates me, and I see it all the time, and I've been guilty of this a few times myself, is when you start giving kids positive points and rewards and things like that, just because they're naughty nine times out of ten, and then one lesson they meet the baseline expectations and there's another kid who meets those expectations 10 times out of 10, and they're not being rewarded 10 times out of 10 they're not being rewarded at all but that one kid you know and it's one of those interesting things when you look at reward systems is how often the kids are who've got the most negative behavior points who actually end up with quite a lot of positive ones as well because they're being rewarded for doing things which other kids aren't rewarded for so i think that's a really really good um, point that you've made there it is 8.57 which means we don't have long at all so I want to before you go Andrew I just want to take you to our question which we posted a few hours ago on Teachers Talk Radio at TT Radio Official if you could give one piece of advice to an ECT starting their first teaching job in September what would it be I've been thinking about this quite a lot one piece of advice is quite tricky so I'm going to condense two into one (laughs) Um, you are absolutely enough you deserve to be where you are you will make mistakes but you will as long as you learn from them you will be absolutely fine and yeah you've got this fantastic thank you andrew um we've just had andrew taylor on better known as mr t's nqt's talking all about his new book you got this thriving as an early career teacher it's published by bloomsbury and you can get a 10 percent discount on you got this direct on their website at bloomsbury.com forward slash uk andrew thank you so much for giving up an hour and a half of your first talk to us um the book is and um, been published for a few months now so do go out there and check it out whether you're an ect whether you're an ect mentor an induction tutor or just somebody working in a school um who may end up working with ects and trainees in the future it's a really fantastic book it's it's well sequenced and it's full of fantastic insights so thank you andrew for taking your time to join us this evening uh, no thank you so much for uh, inviting me on time i've really really enjoyed it and yeah thank you so much for your support with the book no problem. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Uh, yeah, that was Andrew Taylor uh, talking about you got this thriving as an early career teacher. We've got some fantastic shows on Teachers Talk Radio tomorrow. Let's check them out. What have we got? We've got Poppy Gibson with John McGee tomorrow talking about John McGee's book, The Happy Tank. Um, we have got um, Damon Carr's debut tomorrow at 9pm talking about um, school funding with his guest Rich Amponsa. We've also got Mark Nichols um, with a Twilight Show at 6pm. Um, on Saturday we've got Darren Lester talking about 33 teacher celebrities and on Sunday we've got the weekly review hosted by myself and we'll be talking about all sorts of things we'll probably be talking about the government's um, published report on teacher workload and well-being which is quite important and we'll be talking about the other big stories which have been going on during the Easter holidays um, and on Sunday we'll also be joined by Sabrina Muckadam on 11am who's going to be hosting her very first teacher, um, Teachers Talk radio show on Twitter Spaces um, We've got a debut, 8pm um, on Sunday as well, Wendy Frost. And 5pm, we have got the Twilight Show with Maud as well. So we've got a really jam-packed um, weekend with you before we go back to all go back to work on Monday. Um, 
yeah, I won't count down the number of days. It's a bit depressing. But thank you, Andrew, for your time. Thank you, everybody, for listening, whether you've been listening live on Twitter Spaces or you've been listening back as a podcast on our website, on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast provider. Um, that's it from me tonight. So a very good evening. Enjoy the rest of your evening and the rest of your holidays. And I shall talk to you again on Sunday. for You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.